Mighty God and Everlasting Father, Son and Holy Spirit, as we come before you, we ask that you would help us realize and see clearly the triune Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit ministering to each other, creating the worlds, ministering to their elect servant. We thank you, Almighty God, you who are one and three, one God in three persons. We ask that you would be with us as we read your word, as we survey the book of Genesis, as we look at your triunity therein, and we pray that the rest of Scripture would complement what we find in the book of Genesis, that we would know you as Father, Son, and Spirit. We ask for the aid of the Holy Spirit as the word is preached and as, as it is heard. We ask that you would give much grace, much help, much unction. We ask for your power, your glory to be manifest here this morning. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's turn to Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1 as we read the scripture, as we're thinking about the different aspects of who God is. We've talked about his holiness and his righteousness, his sovereignty, his goodness, his grace. This morning we're going to look at God as triune. But let's read Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And when we think about who this God is and what it is that he has done, we see not only that he has a number of different attributes, but we should also look at his makeup, his triunity, his personhood. Now, the divines throughout church history are very right in believing that in the Old Testament there are shadows of the Trinity found. And there are pieces of it, of that doctrine, scattered throughout the Old Testament. And it is very much more clearly portrayed in the New Testament. But we should remember that whatever is portrayed in the New Testament is first found in the Old Testament even if it is under shadows. And when we deal with Genesis and looking at the triune God and looking at the Trinity, we begin to think about that God has certain attributes that we describe his being and his essence from. Wrong views of God will corrupt our worship. It will corrupt the way that we view him. It will corrupt our understanding of him. And when we look uh, as Christians at Genesis 1.1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, the rest of the Bible is used to explain what that verse means. So it's very important that we understand who God is, even though it is essentially a cryptic sentence until it's filled and it's packed with content that makes sense to the propositions that are found in it itself. An Arian will be able to say, in the beginning God created, created the heavens and the earth. A Jehovah's Witness will say, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The Mormons will say, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. But all of them mean something different. That's why when you have three people in a room and you leave that room and close the door, let's say one of them is a Reformed theologian, one is a Mormon and one is a Jehovah's Witness, 
and you hear one say, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and then a second one say, yes, I agree, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and the third say, yes, I agree as well, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, all of them are not saying the same thing. It's what is behind those words that have meaning. So Genesis itself not only gives the reader information about God and his attributes, but also gives hints about God as persons and essence. The doctrine of the Trinity overall in both the Old Testament and the New Testament lies in pieces. It's set there in fragments that must be pieced together, that when such is done, it's not that the doctrine becomes scriptural suddenly, but simply more clear to us when we study that doctrine. When we put this together, we're not coming up with a new doctrine or idea, but what the scriptures teach comprehensively about the God of Genesis 1.1. That's why phraseology always gives way to content, and words have to be packed with meaning. When you say Trinity, that means something. Trinity, as you know, is not a biblical term. It's not in the Bible. But it's a theologically packed term that describes biblical ideas. The Confession says it this way, There is but one only, the living and true God, in three persons in the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one God, the same in substance, equal in power and glory. Now, there are no scriptures anywhere in the Bible that come comparatively close to that definition. Anywhere. There's nothing that even remotely comes close to that. Rather, we have to study the Bible to pack the term Trinity with all the information that the Bible teaches in its various scriptures about who God is. Sometimes we have to pick at the mind of God to know what he wants us to know in his word. And in this case, that's one of those times. Genesis itself demonstrates much of who God is in essence and person. It demonstrates his plurality and also demonstrates his singleness. So let's look at some of the various aspects of Genesis. The threeness of God's actions in creation first. The threeness of God's actions in creations. The essence of God is hinted at in the actions that God takes in what he created. Now, the Bible says that God created. Now, the Hebrew Elohim is plural and is joined to the singular verb to create. He created. So, literally, it says God, plural, he, singular, created, which is an amazing aspect right from the very beginning. God, plural, he, singular, created. And what did this plural, singular God create? Well, God created two heavens and one earth. He created three things. He, re he created the Shemaim, the dual heavens, the heaven that he has all of the angels in, and the heavens that the birds fly in, and he created the one earth. It's a tri-universe. Or it's a three-in-one universe as God created it. Heavens, heavens, and earth. 
So how did this plural God, he singular, create a tri-universe? He created it in groups of threes. On day one, God creates light. While on day four, he creates the sun, the moon, and the stars that go in that particular day. So on day one and day four are grouped together. On day two, he separates the waters, making the clouds and the seas, and he forms the sky. While on day five, he creates birds and fish to inhabit those places. On day three, he forms the dry ground. And on day six, he creates the animals and humans to live there. So the very act and manner in which he creates the tri-universe, God, plural, he, singular, creates the tri-universe in groups of threes and by three ways. God ordered creation a specific way. He ordered it in a threefold manner. First, he speaks by what we call direct fiat. And a fiat is a command or act of will that creates something without or as if without effort, effortlessly. So, first God simply creates by his speaking, by these fiats that way. Secondly, he works by separation. He separates the seas from the land. He separates the sky from the earth. He separates the day from the night. All of these things he separates. So after he creates, he then separates. Thirdly, he commands by production. He commands the earth to produce everything in verses 11 and 12 in chapter 1. He commands the lights of the sky to govern the day and the night. He commands animals to bring forth more animals in verse 24. He even sets man in the garden in a threefold manner. Husband, wife, to go out to multiply and have children, husband, wife, and children. He created the universe in a threefold distinction with past and present and future. And he created it dimensionally in a threefold form with length and breadth and width. So God, who created the universe, does not work in a monolithic way. He works rather in a varied manner in a threefold manner, because God, plural, he, singular, created the tri-universe in groups of three, by three ways, created men after his image in a threefold manner, and created the universe with a threefold pattern of past, present, and future, and length, breadth, and width. There is... The God who creates the heaven and earth in verse 1. There is the Spirit of God who hovers over the face of the water and molds the world and the earth and forms it into something in verse 2. It's even said that the Spirit gives life to Adam in chapter 2 and verse 7 and that the Spirit interprets dreams in verse uh, chapter 41 and verse 38. So God creates the heavens and the earth. The Spirit hovers over the face of the water and molds the earth. And the speech or word of God issues these divine commands or fiats. Interesting that God creates in a threefold manner. There's a deliberation in God. In Genesis 1, 26 and 27 it says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. 
Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. There's a further deliberation again in Genesis 3.22. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, to know good and evil. And now, lest he put out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. And again in Genesis 11.7, there's a deliberation again. Come, let us go down and therefore confuse their language that they may not understand one another's speech. So, not only does the scriptures demonstrate in the manner that God creates a tri-universe in groups of three with a threeness to just about everything that he did, but there's also deliberation within the Godhead himself that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, though we haven't necessarily have a scripture yet that says he is Father, Son, and Spirit, we do have that God creates, the Spirit is there molding things, and the Word creating. We also find throughout Genesis that theophanies that appear, appear in a tri-form. Or, rather in thinking of it this way, that God manifests himself in varied ways. It's not clear and cut that God simply shows up as God and that's the end of it. He doesn't do that. As a matter of fact, he shows up in a various number of ways. Let's look and see. A couple of these. In Genesis chapter 16, it says, Now the angel of the Lord. And in verse 9 of, of 16, it says, The angel of the Lord said to her. In 10, the angel of the Lord said to her. In 11, and the angel of the Lord said to her. And she said, I have seen the God who sees. This was Hagar. When the angel of the Lord came to her, the angel speaks to Hagar. He informs her of Ishmael and the name to be given. And Hagar replies that God sees her. In Genesis 21, 17 to 18, it says, And God heard the voice of the lad. Then the angel of God called to Hagar out of heaven and said to her, What ails you? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the lad. And then he says, For I will make him a great nation. So the angel of the Lord is the same as God and speaks as if God speaks. In Genesis chapter 22, 11 and 12. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. So he said, Here I am. And he said, Do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God. Since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from God, no, from me. I know you fear God. Your only son, you have not withheld him from me. The angel of the Lord calls from heaven, making promises in line with the covenant that God had already established with Abraham and says that Abraham has not withheld his son from him. In Genesis 31, in verses 10 to 13, it says, And it happened at the time when the flocks conceived that I lifted my eyes and saw in a dream, and behold, the rams which leaped upon the flocks were streaked, speckled, and gray-spotted. Then the angel of God spoke to me in a dream, saying, Jacob, and I said, Here I am. And he said, Lift your eyes now and see, all the rams which leap on the flocks are streaked, speckled, and gray-spotted. For I have seen all that Laban is doing to you. I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed the pillar, 
and where you made the vow to me. Now arise, get out of this land and return to the land of your family. So the angel tells Jacob things that are identified with God alone. The angel is God. In Genesis 18 and 19, three men appear to Abraham and it says that the Lord appeared to him in the form of these three men. And he said, I will certainly return to you according to the time of life. And behold, Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. Sarah was listening in the tent door which was behind him. One God presents himself in such a way as simply, for our purposes now, to pose questions as to how he interacts with men in various forms. And even the manner in which God is seen in Genesis, he shows himself in relationship to the tri-form of his elect servants. He is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Joseph said to his brethren, I am dying, but God will surely visit you and bring you out of this land to the land of which he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. It's interesting that continually throughout the book of Genesis, you have God creating, the spirit molding, and the word speaking, or creating through the word, demonstrating that God is an us, and he's singular in a he, but plural in God and Elohim. He creates a tri-universe in groups of three. He makes it with breadth and width and length, and past and present and future. He demonstrates himself in a manner in which poses questions as to the way he shows himself in threes, in the angel of the Lord, speaking as though it is God. In all of these ways, there are hints throughout all of Genesis that demonstrates that God is not simply singular as God, but also plural in persons. Now, the scriptures, from that point onward, we establish one God in three persons from all of the other scriptures throughout the Bible that demonstrates what Genesis foundationally teaches. There is one God, and it's multiple something in that one God, and we'll find out what that is, but there's one God with a plurality about him. The scripture proves that God is one. Deuteronomy 6, 4 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Isaiah 45, 5 and 6, I am the Lord and there is no other. There is no God besides me, that there is none besides me. I am the Lord, there is no other. I form the light and create darkness. I make peace and create calamity. I, the Lord, do all these things. There's one God. 1 Corinthians 8, 4, Therefore we know that an idol is nothing in the world and that there is no God but one. Ephesians 4, 6, One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in you all. There's one God. But there's also three in one. A plurality. Scripture proves three in one. In Romans 8, not reading that whole chapter, we find Jesus Christ who dies for sin, the spirit that is the spirit of life in which Christians walk, in which gives us life, and God the Father who sends his Son and sends the Spirit. In Ephesians 1, 3 to 14, we find God the Father blessing us with the spiritual blessings of Christ's work, done according to the good pleasure of his will before the world was even created, and then sealing the work of Christ's death with the sealing of the Holy Spirit of promise. 
all of these aspects of the one God. 2 Thessalonians 2, 1-14, some of those scriptures say, God from the beginning chose you for salvation through sanctification of the spirit and belief in the truth, to which he called you by our gospel for the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. You have God, the spirit, and our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus tells his disciples in Matthew 28, 19, that they are to go out baptizing in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. In Mark chapter 1, verses 9 to 11, which is paralleled to Matthew chapter 3, 16 and 17, we have the Father's voice, the Son himself, and the Spirit's descending. When he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. And suddenly a voice came from heaven, saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And there's also, in this same way, over and over and over again, always a threefold repetition of something seen throughout the Scriptures. For example, in the blessing of numbers, God tells Moses and Aaron, that they're to bless the people in a certain way. Well, how are they to bless them? Listen to what it says. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. There's a threefold repetition. What is God? He's holy? No. He's holy, holy, holy. There's a threefold repetition in Isaiah 6.3. And in looking at this one God in a threefold repetition... And looking at this one God in three persons, we find the scripture naming the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. The name Father is applied in scripture to the triune God and as God is creator of all things. 1 Corinthians 8.6 Yet for us there is one God, the Father, of whom are all things and we for him. Hebrews 12.9 Furthermore, we have had human fathers who have corrected us, and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? God is the Father of spirits. James 1.17 Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, and comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. He's also said to be the Father of Israel. As Deuteronomy 32, 6 says, Do you thus deal with the Lord, Yahweh, O foolish and unwise people? Is he not your father who bought you? Has he not made you and established you? Isaiah 63, 16, Doubtless you are our father. He is the father of believers. Matthew 5, 45, That you may be sons of your father in heaven. Matthew 6, 6. But you, when you pray, go into your room, and when you have shut your door, pray to your Father, who is in the secret place. And your Father, who sees in secret, will reward you openly. Romans eight fifteen, For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption, by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. So we have the Father, demonstrating that he is God. In a deeper sense, however, this idea of Father is applied to the first person of the Trinity to express his relationship to the Son. 
John 1.14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John 8.54. Jesus answered, If I honor myself, my honor is nothing. It is my Father who honors me, of whom you say that he is your God. John 14.12-13. Most assuredly I say to you, He who believes in me, the works that I will do, he will do also, and greater works than these he will do, because I go to my Father. And whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. So, this fatherhood, of which all earthly fatherhood is really just a faint reflection of, the distinctive characteristic of the Father is that He generates the Son from all eternity. The works particularly ascribed to the Father are those of planning the work of redemption, of creation and providence, and representing the Trinity in the covenant of redemption. The Father as God. Now, there's also the Son. And the second person in the Trinity is called the Word, or the Son, or the Son of God, or the Son of Man. John 8, 58-59. Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Then they took up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple, going through the midst of them, and so passed by. Now that's a very blatant scripture. A lot of people say, well, why doesn't Jesus just come right out and say, I am God? Well, that's what he just said. He said, I am. It's the same as an exodus in the narrative when Moses stands before the burning bush and, go, and he says, who shall I say sent me? And God says, I am has sent you. Jesus says that before Abraham even was, he says, I am. That Christ is God. Did the Jews have a problem understanding what Jesus said? No. They took up stones to stone him because he was being blasphemous, equating himself with God. The Son bears this name as the only begotten one of the Father, the one and only Son of the Father. John 1.18 No one has seen God at any time, the only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared to him. Now, even though we have a couple of scriptures in the Old Testament that talk about God as Father, Jesus exegetes the Father. He explains the Father. He manifests the Father. If we didn't have Christ's explanations about who the Father is, we wouldn't have much information about the Father. Jesus says in John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. The Father begets the Son. John 3.18, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And Galatians 4.4 4 says that this Son came, and in the fullness of time, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law. So the Son, as the second person of the Trinity, is the Son of God is equal with God in power and glory and substance, but has a differentiation in terms of person and work, as the scriptures demonstrate. The Messiah is chosen of God for the particular task of coming and saving his bride. Matthew 8, 29. And suddenly they cried out, saying, 
What have we to do with you, Jesus, you son of God? So even the demons know that Jesus is the son of God, that the Messiah is the son of God. Matthew 26, 63 and 64. But Jesus kept silent, and the high priest answered and said to him, I put you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the son of God. So even the Jews knew that the Messiah to come was going to be God. Jesus said to him, it is as you said. He is God. He is God's son. He is God in the flesh. John 1.49 Nathanael answered and said to him, Rabbi, you are the son of God, the king of Israel. John 11.27 She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the anointed one, the son of God, who has come into the world. In virtue of his special birth, it is by operation of the Holy Spirit that he is begotten, that he is incarnate. Luke 1, 31 and 32. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and he will be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. Luke 1.35 And the angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore also, that Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. His special characteristic as the second person of the Trinity is that he is eternally begotten of the Father. Psalm 2.7 I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, You are my son today. I have begotten you. Acts 13.33 God has fulfilled this for us, their children, in that he has raised up Jesus. As it is also written in the second psalm, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. And Hebrews 1.5 says the same thing. For which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. And again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. The works that are particularly ascribed to the Son, to the Messiah, are works of covenant fulfillment and mediation in being sent of the Father in the power of the Holy Spirit. He mediated the work of creation, the very act of creation. John 1.3 All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made, and what was he? The Word, and we've already seen in Genesis that the Word created. The Word was spoken and things came into being. John 1.10, he was in the world and the world was made through him and the world did not know him. Hebrews 1.2, through whom also he made the worlds. So the Son created or mediated the work of creation. He also mediates the work of redemption. All covenant fulfillment in the work of redemption. Ephesians 1, 3-5 Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. So the Father begets the Son, and now the Father and the Son send forth the Holy Spirit.
The Holy Spirit is God himself. The Holy Spirit is found in creation. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. The Holy Spirit as God, the scriptures say in John 14, 16 to 17, And I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may abide with you forever, the Spirit of truth, sent forth from the Father. John 14, 26, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. The Spirit, as the psalmist says, is everywhere, in heaven above, in hell below. Wherever he tries to make his bed, there the Spirit of God is. John 15:26. But when the Helper comes, whom I shall send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me. John 16:14. He will glorify me, for he will take of what is mine and declare it to you. The Spirit is not an it. The Spirit is a he. He will glorify me. He will take. He is a person. Romans 8:27. Now he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because he makes intercessions for the saints according to the will of God. He acts. He searches. He knows all things. He has all the attributes that God has. Acts 5, 3-4. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? Well, who did he lie to? You have not lied to men, but to God. The Spirit is God. He has intelligence, as Jesus says in John 14, where he talks about the Spirit teaching you all things. He has feelings, as the Scriptures accommodate that information to us. Ephesians 4.30 And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. He has a will. Acts 16.7 After they had come to Mysia, they tried to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit did not permit them. 1 Corinthians 12.11 There is one and the same Spirit, and he works all things, distributing to each one individually as he wills. The Spirit works that way. It demonstrates him as speaking and searching and testifying and commanding and revealing and distinguishing all things by his power. He makes even intercession for the saints as they pray. The angel answered and said to her in Luke 1.35, The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore, also, that Holy One who is born will be called the Son of God. Luke 4.14, Then Jesus returned in the power of who? The power of the Spirit to Galilee. In Acts 10.38, How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. Jesus works in the power of the Spirit. 1 Corinthians 2.4 That Paul, when he was speaking, was in demonstration of the power of the Spirit. He says, but in dem demonstration of the Spirit and of power in his preaching. The Spirit's special characteristic is that he proceeds from the Father in the Son by what we call theologically spiration. He is sent from the Father and the Son, as John 15, 26. But when the Helper comes, whom I shall send to you from the Father, 
the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me. John 16, 7. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I don't go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. Remember, the Spirit is the Spirit of Christ. Romans 8, 9. Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. In general, it may be said that it is the Spirit's task to bring things to completion, both in creation and in redemption. He's the great applier. In Genesis 1, he hovers over the face of the water, and he takes that which is void and dark and twisted, and he changes it into something beautiful. Job 26.13 says, By his spirit he adorned the heavens. In Luke 1.35 it says, In that same way, in that same hovering, he hovers over Mary to create in her, or to form in her from her substance and some other special divine substance, Christ, the personhood of the Son now inhabiting the human nature of the woman. It is not that the human nature is divine, but that the Holy Spirit creates a human vessel that the person of the Son may inhabit it. John 3.34 For he whom God has sent speak the words of God, for God does not give the Spirit by measure. The Spirit is given so that the acts of creation and the acts that even Christ went through in dealing with all that he had to do in growing in grace and in the power of the Spirit to do all that he had to do for the church and for completing the covenant that he had made with the Father and the Spirit in eternity past. Even in the way the Spirit works in the church, for all of us, there are a diversities of gifts. Where do those gifts come from? The same Spirit. He continues in redemption by aiding us with the gifts that we have. As Ephesians 2.22 says, In whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. So even the entire church in and of itself is animated and moved and empowered by the Spirit. So it is said that he brings to completion these things and applies them. We have the Father, we have the Son, we have the Spirit. They are all God, one God, in three persons, equal in power and glory, the same substance, yet individually one, in persons three. When we've said that, when we've said that God is one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, equal in power and glory, of the same substance. When we've said that, we have said all that we can say about the Trinity without delving into much mystery. The Scripture demonstrates those truths, those ideas. However, regardless, obviously, as we've already seen just by the way God works in Genesis, this, the implications for living the implications for living in terms of being God's servants and recognizing God as Trinity has some very profound impacts upon us. So, in this last section, I want to talk about the Trinity's implications for our own living before him. 
We talked about what Genesis demonstrates in terms of the triunity of God or the threeness that we find throughout Genesis. We talked about the rest of the scripture's demonstration of the Father and the Son and the Spirit very briefly. But now I want to also talk about the Trinity's implications for living. Why is it such a big deal that we recognize not God as simply God, but as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Well, eternal life and the covenantal union that we have in God is placed in the knowledge of the Trinity. You cannot be saved without understanding the Trinity. John 17:3, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you, as you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. So what is eternal life? Jesus says, and this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. They must know, we must know, the Father and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. John 14, 1 and 9. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. He who has seen me has seen the Father. So the very aspects of eternal life for us are bound up in the Trinity. It is through the Holy Spirit that we are sealed and set for the day of redemption. We are adopted as sons through the power of the Holy Spirit, and he applies everything that Christ has done to us. He gives us the ability to believe, the ability to have faith in Christ, that we may come to the Father. God has revealed himself, secondly, in salvation as Trinity, as Trinitarian. Romans 8.32 He that's God, who didn't spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How, how, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Well, Romans 8, in and of itself, demonstrate that God gave his son. The father sent his son. The son came and died. And the spirit applies that redemption to us. He has revealed himself as Trinity in the manner in which he saves us. Thus, all of these things that he freely gives us, these things that are free, these are the things of effectual calling, of regeneration, of faith, of repentance, of justification, of sanctification. These are the things that he freely gives us. God has revealed himself in salvation as a trinity, and thus our relationship to him whether that means in worship, whether that means in our daily prayers, whether that means in everything that we do in our Christian walk and life, must be with a full realization of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We should, be, we should not just be simply praying to God, so to speak, but we should have a profound sense that it is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit who has saved us that we have knowledge of. For example, worship. Our worship should be Trinitarian. The difference between worshiping God and worshiping the triune God is very important. That is why when we worship together, we consistently speak about confessing our sins to God, that we may be 
forgiven in Christ and have the work of the Spirit applying that to us. When we partake of the supper, the supper in and of itself, God has sent His Son that He died, that we might remember that the Son has died, that we partake of those things. And the Spirit, by His power, gives us strength in faith to rely upon Christ above. Our worship in every way is profoundly Trinitarian. There are lots of churches that worship what they think is just, quote, God. But the Bible is much more specific. Christian worship is not just worshiping God. Christian worship is worshiping the God of the Trinity, the Trinitarian God. And without worship being Trinitarian, without it actually being that, worship becomes twisted and warped. When we pray, just the very act of prayer in our morning devotions is Trinitarian or should be Trinitarian. How do you pray? Well, I sit or I kneel or I uh, lay prostrate or whatever position I happen to take and I have my Bible with me and I read some scriptures and then I pray to God. Well, more specifically, how do you pray? Listen to what the Westminster Larger Catechism says in question 178. Prayer is an offering up of our desires unto God, good so far, in the name of Christ, by the help of the Spirit, with confession of our sins and thankful acknowledgement of His mercies. That's what prayer is. It's prayer to the Father, through the Son, in the power of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus taught us to pray to who? The Father, through the Son, by the Spirit. We pray to our Father, in the name of the Son, in the power of the Spirit. Even our morning prayers are Trinitarian, or should be Trinitarian. In other words, when we deal with understanding the Trinity, it's not just a lot of good systematic theology that we go over. When we deal with the Trinity, we're talking about the communion that we have with the living God. The living God is Father, Son, and Spirit. We are to commune with the Father. 1 John 2.15 If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. We have a commune. Uh, communing aspect that we have of the Father just in love. First Peter 1.17 If you call on the Father, who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear. You call on the Father. Ephesians 5.20 Giving thanks always for all good things to God the Father. We are to commune with the Father. We are to commune with the Son. John 6:29 Jesus answered and said to them this is the work of God that you believe in the one he has sent So Peter tells us that we're supposed to call on God the Father and then Jesus says we're supposed to believe on the one he has sent which is the Son Ephesians 6:24 Grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity Well John had told us that we're supposed to have the love of the Father Paul is telling us in Ephesians that we are to love our Lord Jesus Christ and have a loving relationship with him Acts 7.59, and they stoned Stephen as he was calling on God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He was looking towards Christ, even in his death, to go into the arms 
of Christ. So we commune with the Father, we commune with the Son, we also commune with the Spirit. Romans 8.2 For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. The very aspect of salvation, regeneration, change, is done by the power of the Spirit. How thankful are we that we have been regenerated in that way by His power. Jesus says the very nature of being born again is by the Spirit, for the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. Hebrews 10.15 says, But the Holy Spirit also witnesses to us. He teaches us things. He witnesses to us in the Word. He testifies to our spirits that we're sons of God. He helps us understand the Word when we read it, that it is true. 1 Peter 4.14 Blessed are you for the Spirit of glory and God rests upon you. The Spirit is in us, rests on us, aids us, helps us, gives us the ability to commune with God. The applicatory point of all of that is that we should have a profound sense of communion with every member of the Trinity and not simply always as God. The Father is God, the Son is God, and the Spirit is God. The Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Spirit, the Spirit is not the Father. But they're all God, and they are all ministering to us as God in their various capacities. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit press us to distinguish their works. They press us to distinguish their persons and realize their condescension to us and what they have done to redeem men. Communion. What does it mean to have communion with God? It means intimate fellowship. The word intimate means to communicate directly. God, through his word, communicates to us directly. And fellowship means companionship. We, in understanding the Trinity, want to be like Abraham the father of our faith, who, as James has told us, Abraham was called a friend of God. In all of this, we want in our minds and in our hearts to remember that it's not simply God we serve, but it is the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, the triune God of whom Genesis speaks of, who has created the tri-universe, who created in three ways, who created a universe with different trifold distinctions, who appears to us in various forms in Genesis as the angel of the Lord, who throughout the rest of the scriptures identifies himself as God, plural, he, singular, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that we are to commune with this God. And thus we are able to take to heart and place in our mind and heart, in a deep and profound manner, 2 Corinthians 13, 14, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Paul says that this is the great benediction that we have as a result of worshiping and serving the God who ought to be thought of always by Christians as Trinitarian. The Father and the Son and the Spirit, let us commune with them, with God, Him, all week. Let us pray and think about the triune God 
as he even affects us in our partaking of communion and thinking about how that works this morning as well. But let us pray and thank God that he has revealed himself to us in this way and that we are blessed to be able to partake of such knowledge. Mighty God and everlasting one, you are our Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We thank you, O Father, that you have decreed salvation and creation from the beginning, that you sent your Son to die and come and redeem us from the fall, and that your Holy Spirit changes our heart and our mind, applies the work of Christ, that we, O God, might commune with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, the one God, equal in power and glory, the same substance, he who is our God. We thank you that you have revealed to us the way that you work, the way that you are in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We thank you, O Lord, that you are who you are, that you are the great I Am. And yet, in such a mysterious way throughout the book of Genesis, as we begin studying it more particularly in the coming weeks, that we would see clearly as we bring all of this information back to that book, that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth means the triune God. In the beginning, God, plural, He created We thank you, O Lord, that you are who you are and that you have revealed yourself to us in a manner in which we can grasp or just apprehend some of your wonder in being triune. We ask, O Lord, that you would work this into our heart and into our mind that throughout this week we may be more sensitive to realize it's not simply the God of creation we serve, but it is the Father and Son and Holy Spirit, who has saved us and redeemed us as well. We ask, O God, that you would hear us in these things, and we praise them in Christ's name. Amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780 780- 450-3730 by fax at 780-468-1096 or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, 
since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.